your enemy now seated at your table. How can you say anything but thank you for that? So good. If you take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20, if you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a black hardbound Bible in the pew in front of you, and Exodus 20 is on page 61 of that Bible. We are working our way through the book of Exodus and have slowed down to take each one of these Ten Commandments, one at a time, to consider them thoughtfully and fully, and, um, and so we continue in that part of our Exodus study this morning. But I want to read verses 1 to 17, just to remind us of all that has been said here in these commandments, and then we'll focus in. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Spirit says. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you now to hear your word, and we pray that you will help us by your Holy Spirit to understand it, to love it, to live according to it. We pray that you will strengthen your church through your word, and we pray that even as we sung in the hymn, that some today, by God's word, at last their sin would learn and tremble at your word and come to the Lord Jesus. Come to Calvary. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. There are times as parents that we make rules that seem silly or unnecessary. 
why do I have to say this? But sometimes we have to say this because some, when, you're, when you're a child, some very odd things seem like good ideas. So parents have rules like no throwing cheese into the ceiling fan, you know, no sticking pancakes between your toes. Uh, one of the rules that we had when our older boys were growing up was uh, no stepping on your brother's neck. Now, that seems obvious, doesn't it? It seems like you wouldn't have to have a rule like that. And it is obvious, unless you're a seven-year-old boy seeking to subdue your six-year-old brother. Then you need the rule. Now, I say all of that because today we come to the Sixth Commandment. You shall not murder. Four words in English, only two in Hebrew. And quite frankly, whether you're a Christian or not, it's probably the most obvious of all of the Ten Commandments. Why does something like this need to be written down? I mean, it seems instinctive. You shouldn't murder. It's, I mean, it's mean. It's awful. It's the worst thing you could do to someone. In fact, if you want to tell someone that you're really not that bad a person, I mean, you might just reference the Sixth Commandment, right, and just say, well, I'm not a murderer or anything. And yet, it did need to be written down. You see, not that long after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, they have two boys. And the very next story we read is of Cain, their son, killing Abel, their other son. A few generations later comes Lamech, and Lamech brags, I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. And the story of mankind then goes on and continues actually as a story of violence, a story of such violence that it comes to the point that God is going to send judgment in the form of a flood. And He tells Noah this, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. After the flood, this issue of violence, this issue of murder isn't going anywhere because sin still reigns in humanity. And so the Lord tells, uh, tells His people, this is how seriously I will take murder. He says it's this serious. He, he gives the first threat of capital punishment. In response to this, He says in Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And in many ways, the story of world history, the story of nations can be written in blood. But here is God establishing Israel, His people, to be a holy nation, to be distinct from all other nations. You see, the nation from which they were rescued, Egypt, this was a nation that wanted to take firstborn sons and toss them into the river. Life was just disposable there in Egypt. But God tells His people, life must not be disposable for you. You shall not murder. And so as we come to this command, I just want to ask two questions. Now, the answers you'll be disappointed to hear are longer than the questions themselves. However, I just want to ask two questions. First, what is commanded here? What is commanded? And actually, the answer to that question is a two-sided coin because there's the way that this 
commandment is given, which is in the negative. You shall not murder. Now, in the Hebrew language, there are several words that you can use to speak about killing, whether it's killing an animal or killing a human. This particular word is only used in reference to killing human beings, taking the lives of human beings. And specifically, what's being forbidden here is the intentional taking of life that's planned, motivated by anger, motivated by hate. Later on, it's distinguished by one who lies in wait for their neighbor, who's always had a dispute with them, and now they've carried something out. It's the intentional taking of life by another. Now, in the law, there are provisions that speak to other kinds of taking of life that are not murder. One is unintentional. There's no plan. There's no malice. In fact, the, the example given in Deuteronomy 19 is that uh, two guys are out in the woods chopping wood, and one guy goes back with his axe, and the head of the axe slips off and hits the other guy, and the other guy dies. Well, this is not murder, the Bible says. He's called a manslayer, not a murderer. The second kind where there's a provision is actually the judicial taking of life. There is provision in the Scripture for the governing authorities to assign that kind of justice. Now, there must be uh, a thorough investigation. There must be multiple witnesses. There must be the proper proceedings. But God does give the state to carry that kind of thing, the, the authority to carry that kind of thing out. But it's not considered murder. Thirdly, is in war. In wartime, the taking, the, the, the taking of life that happens within the context of battle is not considered murder. And then the fourth is self-defense. Now, it seems some people th these days want to expand self-defense to mean all manner of things. However, the example given in, in a couple of chapters, I think Exodus 22, is uh, that a, a thief breaks into your house at night. You're not sure what's going on. You're not sure what he's up to. You're not sure what his plans are. You strike him to protect your family, and he ends up dying. And this is not considered murder. It does say, however, if he comes in in the daytime, and you can see all that's going on, and you just go ahead and do it, that's another story altogether. But there are these provisions. But the fact that these provisions exist in the law, friends, doesn't mean that these deaths don't matter. Because the lives of human beings are still the lives of human beings. Every human being is made in the image of God and matters. And every time a person crosses over from time into eternity, it is a sobering moment. We ought never be giddy when a life is lost even if it was just. But in these provisions, all I'm saying is not that these provisions mean the lives don't matter. All I'm saying is that these provisions mean they don't equal murder. That's not what the sixth commandment is referencing. What is being forbidden is the intentional taking of life. To decide on behalf of another human being or even myself that it's time for life to end, to be extinguished. So this commandment would speak to things like homicide, 
speak to things like abortion, like infanticide, like euthanasia, like suicide, you shall not murder. Not by guns, not by knives, not by bare hands, not by neglect, not by medical instrumentation, and not by medicines. You shall not plan and intentionally take the life of another human being. You shall not do it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Many of you are quite relieved at this point because you're thinking, well, that, also, that is very serious, and I see it on the news, and I see it on my social media feed, and I see it all around me, and I know it happens because we just had recent events within our own you know, community where lives were taken by senseless, intentional violence. But most people hear this kind of thing, and they wipe their brow, and they exhale a big sigh of relief because I haven't done any of these things. I haven't taken a single life. I'm in the clear. And yet, Jesus stands in the Sermon on the Mount and takes all of us relieved people by the shoulders and looks us in the eye and says, you need to understand that the commandment about murder is not just about taking up a weapon or taking a human life. He says in Matthew 5, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder, and the one who commits murder will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Can you imagine the response of the people who are listening to him? Are you sure you meant to say that, Jesus? Everyone who is angry with his brother? Well, and then Jesus' disciple John writes in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. The judgment of God against hate the judgment of God against unrighteous anger is the same judgment as against murder. Just let that sink in for a minute. Because we would actually, you know, there's that, that book by Jerry Bridges, Respectable Sins. We would actually consider anger like a respectable sin so long as I don't act on it. Jesus does not. You may not pick up a weapon or make a plan, but if you hate, if you harbor anger, if you refuse to reconcile. Because actually, that text in Matthew 5, that's what Jesus goes on to say. He's talking about 
You shall, you know, anger will incur judgment. But then later he says, if there's anything between you and another person, just a couple of verses later, he says, you need to lay down your offering. Don't come, don't come to church angry. You don't go to bed angry. Don't come to church angry. You set everything down and you go reconcile and then come. That's what Jesus says. But if you harbor anger, if you harbor hate, if you refuse to reconcile, you refuse to forgive, you refuse to love, guilty. You may not say a hateful word. You may not even say that you hope that they die. You may not yell and scream or explode in anger. You may just grow cold and grow distant and grow silent. You may paste on a smile when you know you're going to be around that person and pretend to be friendly, all the while boiling on the inside. Guilty. You've broken the sixth commandment because at its core, this commandment isn't merely about the activity of the hands. It is about the condition of the heart. That's the negative. You shall not murder. The positive is you shall preserve life. You shall preserve life. This is actually the other side of the coin, and it's right that we would talk about the commandments in a positive manner because Jesus did. Remember how Jesus sums up all of these commandments about our relationships with one another? He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, when Jesus thinks you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, when He thinks that, He can say it in another way. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And obviously, love doesn't murder someone, right? I mean, that seems pretty obvious. Romans 13 says love does no wrong to a neighbor. But as Jesus sums up, Uh, these commandments, these horizontal commandments by saying love your neighbor as yourself, what what he's doing is saying that it's actually not enough to not wrong a neighbor. It's not enough to just stay away. You must love. It's not enough. You must positively Love. The sixth commandment doesn't just mean we don't murder. It means we must preserve life. And actually, we have an example of this. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 10 of love, loving your neighbor, preserving life. We know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus talks about a man who was traveling, and he's robbed, and he's beaten, and he's left for dead. And uh, a couple of men come along that you would expect to help him. Uh, They're good people. They're religious people, a priest, a Levite, but they just walk right on by. And then an unexpected person comes along, a Samaritan, who was like a nobody to the Jews. He comes along, and he doesn't pass by on the other side. He comes to the man, and he bandages his wounds, and he takes him to an inn that's close by, and he basically, he, he, he finances the man's entire recovery at that inn. And the preservation of life demonstrated by that Samaritan is actually a picture of what it means to love your neighbor. 
If you look at the paragraph before, I mean, the emphasis that Jesus is making is, who is your neighbor? Who is this neighbor I'm supposed to love? And, and it's, it, it, it's even those who are nobodies to you, even those who would treat you as a nobody, you love them, but, but you do love them. You actively preserve life. Here's the thing. If it's good enough to simply not kill, to not injure, to not advance to death, if that's it, then why do you walk away from that story thinking less of the priest and the Levite? Why do you walk away thinking, they should have done something? Because they, do they don't do anything. They don't walk over there and kick the guy while he's down. They don't pour salt on his wounds. They don't think we need to put this guy out of his misery. Let's just kill him. They don't. They just walk by and leave him. And yet, as you read the story, you can't walk away from that story without knowing Jesus doesn't think much of this priest and this Levite and their response to this man. Can you? In the same way, friends, we may not actively murder, but we must preserve life. We must protect life. We must speak for life. We must take responsibility for caring for others' lives. We must inconvenience ourselves for the sake of the lives of others. So we don't just avoid abortion, for example. We actively care for children in those difficult circumstances who are born. We love and care for single mothers who have chosen to give life, to give birth. We foster, we adopt, we come alongside those who do. And let me just tell you, over the last 13 years, I mean, I look out, I could scan this whole group, and like you're glowing. All the people that I know have been a part of this. It's like you just shine. I can just see you. And I see the way that you have done this. And I see the way that you as a congregation, you as the people of God have come along and prayed and paid and, baby, and babysat and substituted and come all kinds, all, all manner of ways around those who have done this. This is what we ought to do. We do not merely stand outside a clinic with a sign in our hands. We do not merely, we do rejoice when the Supreme Court makes certain decisions, but we do not merely rejoice when the Supreme Court makes decisions that are in favor of life. We do more than that. You take it the other end of life. We don't just avoid euthanasia. There are places where people are under tremendous pressure to euthanize their loved one. What do we do then? We joyfully make the decision to do the hardest thing we can do, and it is hard, to walk alongside one who is suffering deeply and to keep walking with them and keep walking with them until the Lord 
makes his way known. But it's deeper than that because we need to deal with these inner realities of murder as well. You see, we don't just avoid hate and anger. We don't just grow apathetic. Like, if I just stay away from people, if I just don't care, that's the answer. No, it's not. We actually must, instead of hate and anger, we must be patient. We must be ready to reconcile. We must be eager to forgive. We must live at peace with all people. We must remember God's mercy to us when we were absolutely in rebellion and hateful in His face. And He showed us mercy. But God, because of His great mercy and His love toward us, made us alive together with Christ. And so then, having received the mercy of God, I show mercy. I actually do good to others, even those that in my flesh I would hate or be apathetic or be unrighteously angry toward them because they're not treating me the way I want to be treated. They're not treating me the way I even think I deserve to be treated. But what is it that Romans 12 says? Do not be overcome with evil. Don't. Overcome evil with good. Isn't that what Jesus did in your life? He overcame evil with good. So the question then really becomes, as you think about this commandment, is when is a murderer no longer a murderer? That's a good question. It's one to ponder. When is a murderer no longer a murderer? It is not when they are in prison. It is not even when they die, because they die a murderer. A murderer is no longer a murderer when they stop taking life and start giving it and preserving life. When is a hateful person no longer hateful? It's not when they go away. It's not when they get fired and can't come back to your job anymore. It's not just when their mouth is closed. A hateful person is no longer a hateful person. An angry, an unrighteously angry person is no longer angry when their whole lives are no longer about themselves and what they want, and instead they are dying to themselves and loving others. You shall not murder. Not with your hands and not in your heart. Preserve life. Promote peace. Love your neighbor. That's what's commanded. Now, why is it commanded? Why is this commanded? Well, on the surface, that's a pretty obvious answer, isn't it? I mean... God is establishing a nation. And if Israel is going to be orderly and not chaotic, people can't just run around killing other people, right? If 
if Israel is going to be a place of peace rather than one of discord and dissension, then people can't just go around hating other people. This seems pretty easy. But actually, isn't, aren't those very things the things that our nation needs to hear at this very moment? We as a society have no regard for the sixth commandment. Not in our actions, not in our words, and not in our attitudes. Because you see, for some, the reasoning goes like this. If the nation's not going my way, I will pick up a weapon. Or, if the nation's not going my way, I will pick up hate. James 4 says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Is that not the state of our nation even this morning? Well, someone will say, well, in our culture, this is just how you get things done. You're either going to pick up a weapon or you're going to pick up hate or you're going to pick up venom. You're going to spew it all over the the other people until things start going the way that you want them. That's just how you get things done. Well, maybe. But the question for the Christian isn't how do you get things done? The question for the Christian is how do I please God? And when those answers diverge, we choose to please God rather than get things done. Because if I have to displease God to get things done, of what use is it? Do we think that we can accomplish holy ends with unholy means? Friends, we must not. We must not. We actually need to put down the news service that is shaping our thinking and pick up the Word of God. We need to stop getting up in arms and start getting down on our knees. Do you know how I know we need to hear this? Because if I told you that on the first Sunday night of every month we were going to have a political rally here to talk about legislation that's up and how things are going in Congress and what the president has done and how we must be doing something to correct it, if I told you we were going to have a one-hour meeting every month on the first Sunday night of the month starting at 7 o'clock, we're going to do that right here. We could fill this room with people because that is how you get things done. But if I tell you that once a month on a Sunday night, we're going to come together and pray, I just want you to know, and I speak from experience, that all manner of priorities will take the place of that meeting. It doesn't take much for me to miss a prayer meeting. But it would take an army to keep me from the political rally. 
Friends, we need to repent of this kind of thinking. We need to repent of thinking that what we need is more men and women talking to other men and women about what's going on in the world. We need to repent of that as the highest thing that we could do. And we need to turn back to the fact that we can go to the God of the universe together who's actually not interested in building a nation but building a kingdom. We have forgotten these things, friends. We need to repent as Christians and as a nation. And that's why this kind of command is relatively obvious, isn't it? You can't have orderly society if people are killing one another. You can't have peace if people are hating one another. But what I want to do is actually give you two reasons for this command that have to do with God Himself. What is it about who God is that says, you shall not murder? The first is that God is sovereign over human life. God is sovereign over human life. God is the source of human life. In the very beginning, He formed man from the dust of the ground and blew life into him. And God isn't just the source at that moment. He is the source throughout history. Job says... Uh, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Every baby is knit together in that mother's womb by God Himself. But God is not only the source of life, He sovereignly sustains life. Now, we are absolutely thankful for farmers who, who raise crops and raise cattle and raise pigs and raise chickens and raise more pigs and more pigs. But it is God who sends rain for the crops. It is God who gives life to those animals to sustain us. He Himself, Paul says in Acts 17 as he's preaching, He Himself gives us life and breath and everything. He's the source of life. He sustains life. And He sovereignly brings life to an end. Psalm 139 says that all of our days are written in His book. Whether our days are surprisingly long or tragically short, they're in His book. So that Hebrews 9 says that there is a time appointed for men to die once. It's an appointment none of us will miss. It's an appointment set by the Lord. Now, how does that give us reason not to murder? I mean, some clever person is going to say, well, wouldn't God already know about the murder? Wouldn't God already know that that day was going to be the last day? Well, of course, of course, of course. But for you and I to take the prerogative of God to be sovereign over life and take it for ourselves is a kind of in-your-face rebellion against the Lord of the universe. Whether the person whose life is going to be over is our own or the person I hate or random strangers or a terminally ill person or a person who is still in the womb, murder says to God, you are no longer sovereign over life. I am. I will determine 
when this life is over. And friends, that kind of attitude toward the living God is unthinkable. And it will be punished. God and God alone is sovereign over human life. Second thing, God values human life. God values human life. I mean, certainly God cares for every living creature. He made them, He feeds them, but God values human life above them all. No creature has the kind of place in God's heart that human beings do. God made us in His image. No other creature is that true of. None. In fact, that's why that threat of capital punishment came in Genesis 9. Man, the man who sheds another one's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For he is made in the image of God. That's why. Because each one of us bear God's image, and God values His image in us. He values us especially as human beings. You see, the heart that murders, the heart that hates, whether it's with the hands or with the heart, that heart devalues human life. That heart says, the money in your purse is worth more than your life. The heart of murder says, the career that I can have without having this baby is worth more than this baby. The heart of murder says, your life is not worth as much because of your ethnicity, because of your gender, because of your background, because of whatever it is. The heart of murder says the satisfaction I have in hating you and causing you pain and heartache is worth more than you. The heart of murder says holding your sin over your head, holding a grudge, is more valuable than you are. The heart of murder says satisfying my desire for revenge is more important than you are. In the end, murder, the heart of murder says I am worth more than you are. Don't you know that's what it is when you hold a grudge? Don't you know that's what it is when you refuse to forgive? Don't you know that that's what it is when you hate? And don't you know that that's what it is every time a weapon is picked up to take the life of another human being? I am more important than you are. The Bible tells us God does not show partiality. God shows no partiality, and murder is partiality to the extreme. And so the heart of murder looks at God and says, you've got your values mixed up because my life is worth more than their life because I'm worth more than they are. Friends, we can't think this way and be followers of Jesus. You see, because if you think about the person who is gunned down in the street, you think about the one who is gunned down in an elementary school 
or in a food court. You think about the, 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 the one that you hate, the one you have a personal vendetta against, the one you refuse to forgive. Every single one of them is part of the humanity that God values and sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem. God sent His Son to redeem all who would come to Him. And those are things that are left in His hands and not yours and not mine. And the fullness of that love, the fullness of God's value of human life is seen at the cross. God's great love for human beings is seen at the cross in the outstretched arms of Jesus, in the pierced brow of Jesus, in the suffocating breaths of Jesus, in the uh, whipped back of Jesus in the cold and dead and wrapped and buried body of Jesus. This is the evidence that God values every human life. Because this life is not all that there is. Human beings do not cease to exist at the end of this life. They go on. They will either go on in under the judicial punishment of God, experiencing eternal death, or they will go on under the gracious love of God, experiencing eternal life. And at the cross, Jesus endures all the punishment for our sin. The wrath of God was satisfied. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus until He was crushed by it and killed by it. That, friends, is the love of God. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins. God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the love of God seen in Jesus is for the murderer and the one who would be the victim, for the abortion doctor and the one who has had an abortion, for the hater and the hated, for the one who hurts others and the one who is hurt. It is for anyone who will come to Jesus by faith, which, friend, means it's for you. It is for you. It is a forgiving love, a restoring love, an adopting love, a saving Love, a marvelous, wonderful, life-giving love. Our sin of breaking the sixth commandment, whether with our hands or in our hearts, incurs God's judgment, and yet the love of Jesus covers a multitude of sins. The love of Jesus on the cross sets us free from fear of judgment. His perfect love casts out our fear.
do you know this love? We are not loved, friends, because of our worthiness. We are loved because of God's worthiness. If it was just about us, we'd be left unloved forever. We'd be left in our sin forever. We'd be left in judgment forever. And yet God has loved us. He has sent His Son for us. You can be forgiven of the multitude of your own sin. Never to fear judgment again if you will come to Jesus by faith. If you will turn from that sin and trust in Jesus. The other thing about this love is that it's actually a transforming love. Because once you know this love, you don't actually want to take life. You want to lay down your life. You don't, you don't want to hate. You want to love your neighbor as yourself. And as you do, you find there is no greater joy on this side of heaven than imitating Jesus in that kind of love. You shall not murder. You shall preserve life because God is sovereign and God values human life. Look at Jesus and you'll see. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, the lover of our souls, the one who has given all to save us. And we give you thanks for him. And we pray that we will see life as precious as you do. That we will not simply count ourselves obedient by not murdering but that we will seek to preserve life and promote peace and love our neighbor as ourself. We pray that you would give us grace. We pray that you will give us the grace of repentance to think that taking up weapons and taking up hate is the solution to any problem in our lives or in our culture. God, would you reorient us so that prayer is a higher priority than politics? We thank you, Lord, that you are patient with us and merciful with us and for the marvelous and wonderful love of the Lord Jesus Christ toward us. Thank you that there is forgiveness in him. We pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand and we're going to sing a hymn before we leave.